0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy. Ren, how's it going, bro?
2: I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. I've been getting a bit of hate in the equity mates community about saying I'm excited too much. From my dad is actually leading the charge. But look, I am excited for this episode. We're speaking to a company that we've spoken to a few times before, but they've recently IPO'd. They're now a public company. And you know, we've been talking a lot about IPOs Mm. here. So I think it's a good time to see what life in the public markets is like.
1: That's right. It is an interesting process for a company to go from the private markets to the public. And uh, as you said, we've done a number of episodes recently exploring the process and interviewing a few CEOs who are about to or have gone through it. So we thought we'd continue with that and bring the guys from Plenty, formerly known as Rate Setter. We've got Ben and Glenn. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having
3: us. Thank you very much. So uh,
1: a little bit about Ben. Ben joined Plenty as co-founder in May 2014 and April 2018 was appointed to his current position as Chief Commercial Officer responsible for key commercial relationships and group legal and compliance. Ben has diverse experience in financial services and online strategy. He's well-practiced in high-growth digital ventures. Prior to joining Plenty, Ben was a principal at Boston Partners, providing advisory services in digital strategy, marketing, and online product development. Quite some experience there, Ben. Nice. it's straight from the prospectus. Well <laughs> <laughs> nice. Glenn joined Plenty as co-founder as well and chief operating officer in April 2014. Glenn has broad experience in building and advising disruptive finance platforms and has been involved in the retail lending industry since 2007. Prior to joining Plenty, Glenn was a principal at Boston Partners as well, providing advisory services in digital strategy, marketing and online product development. So Glenn... Again, a lot of experience. There. It's
3: basically the same bio, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> really I say we, like, say Hold 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 we say it once. A and tip just to say.
0: Reader's Boston Partners was ben and Galeen,
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to unpack a little bit about yourselves in a minute, and also everything that is happening at Plenty, the brand change, the the cap rates, the IPO. A lot to go through. Particularly some questions from our audience as well. But before we do, we'll kick off with our overrated underrated game.
2: Yeah, so we do like to start with a bit of a game to throw out a. A few themes or indexes that we may not otherwise touch on and uh, get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated at the moment. Given there's two of you, we might just go one for one. So Ben, we'll start with you. Overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index?
0: Probably underrated, I think, actually. Australia's a pretty lucky country in terms of the way it's dealing with COVID, the amount of money the federal government is prepared to throw at the problem, And whilst obviously it tracks international indices, you'd think that Australia's got to see itself as relatively well positioned compared to everywhere else in the world. So, you know, I think ASX 200 and the all the stocks not in the 200, but hope to be one day should, should all go up. So uh... I,
2: yeah, I was going to say underrated and even more underrated if Absolutely. plenty makes it in the ASX 200 one day. Totally, Yeah.
3: So Glenn, overrated, underrated the NASDAQ 100? I would say underrated as well. I think the general trajectory of capital is, is really towards really big networks. And no, the NASDAQ is significantly overweight, very, very large network-based companies. And you can only really see increasing returns to scale they're there so if anything yeah really underrated
0: no financials though so i think they're missing a trick (laughs) on (laughs) that so ben this next one might be
2: a little bit of a
0: softball but i think it's going (laughs) to set
2: the tone for the interview overrated or underrated term deposits
0: probably equal rated but it depends what you want them for you know if you want to have not a return
1: that's for sure that's
0: if you want to go backwards relative to inflation but sleep well at night well then that's fine uh if you want to actually do something with your money obviously terribly overrated going
2: backwards relative to inflation i think is a very popular investing goal so yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs>
1: Glenn, overrated or underrated the Australian residential property market?
3: I would say underrated, similar rationale to what Ben had for the ASX 200 being the relative position of Australia compared with the rest of the world. Though there is some nuance here because really there's a two-track residential property market in Australia, right? There's there's kind of Sydney and Melbourne, there's kind of everything else. So maybe if I could uh, add a caveat, Sydney and Melbourne underrated. Those markets are really competing more and more with, with large, really attractive international lifestyle mm. cities, right? Tokyos and Londons sort of this world. Not directly analogous, but they're more similar to that than they are Goulburn, right? So oh,
0: then the re- <laughs> what regional, regional area is probably a little bit overrated. <laughs> Sorry, long answers. <laughs> I <laughs> think
2: Goulburn's <is> doing <laughs> really well.
0: <laughs> Newcastle's where it's at. Yeah, that's right. I may or may not be conflict on the, you know. <laughs>
2: So Ben, to round out this game, last
0: question. Overrated or underrated? Bitcoin. Overrated. Okay, and why is that? I think if someone had figured out what problem it solved, they would have figured it out by now and I don't know that they have. <laughs> this, this is one This is
3: one of which we violently agree, which is very good. It's neither a very good currency. It's terrible payments infrastructure. It's slow and expensive. And as for the claim that it's an uncorrelated asset during the meltdown in March and April, all I saw was a very heavy correlation with what was happening everywhere <laughs> else. So the claim that somehow digital gold didn't really stand up either.
1: So we always like to get out the story of your first investments to kick off the interview. So Perhaps, uh, Glenn, we'll start with you. Are you able to share the story of your first investment?
3: Yeah, I actually had to rack my brain for this one. It turns out my first investment was buying a cow, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, which is there's some deep irony in that and that i'm now a vegetarian but uh, no, so you I, a cow? yeah you didn't know this no. no so i went to a stock auction with my grandfather because he was a, a beef and sheep farmer in new zealand and yeah his idea of getting me into farming was to basically float me the money to buy a cow now i in retrospect is probably a pretty artificial exercise because Bought the cow. I saw the cow a couple of times. I got a stake dividend, I guess. <laughs> and then one day he gave me $20 and said that that was the amount that I got for selling the cow. But... Um, yeah, I don't know how true it was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's very good. There you go. Can you top that, Ben? <laughs> no, no. Mine, though, was similarly an alternative asset class. I think probably it was a, a private equity investment in myself. In that age 13, I used to flog like computer components to friends in prep school. And, uh, you know, I needed some to convert some pocket money into stock to trade in. And so I used to go online to what was the equivalent of New Zealand sort of gum trees called TradeMe, buy, you know, parallel imported Chinese equipment and sell it to unsuspecting <laughs> kids of eastern suburbs families and um, did quite well for my first venture aged I think 12 or 13. So oh. uh, that, that was my first investment if you like. I there, don't know. I F- 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 paid off pretty well for all $100. Hundred <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very entrepreneurial of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moving from your first investment, you guys both worked in markets at Boston Partners. Is that right? You were investing? No, it no. was more consulting. Okay. As well, as okay. What we were
3: doing. Yeah. So we worked commonly alongside other consulting firms and we would all range of work a lot of just pure strategy stuff, yeah, um, right. a lot of digital work as well.
2: Is that where you guys met? No, or is it? We've just... actually
3: known each other for a remarkably long time. <laughs> There's a photo of us from a very long time ago when we were both still at school, which is impressive. Yeah, it? yeah. We went to school in many different parts of the
0: country. And ran into each other. Yeah. yeah. But we actually, we knew each other a little bit through university and actually the story of our, I guess, both interest in financial services and sort of real working life together came Almost exactly 16 years ago, is that right? No, that can't be right. 2014. Where are we now? So no, no, 2007. 2007, that's what it is. So November 14, 2007 was when Glenn and I first founded a business in Auckland, in New Zealand. It was called Nex, and it was a peer-to-peer lending business, and we were two 23 year twenty-three-year-old founders, twenty-two, something like that. I was twenty-one. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. We were very young, and we had this idea that we'd seen some businesses in the US and the UK start this crazy idea of peer-to-peer lending. We'd see the rise of marketplace models and things like TradeMe and eBay, and you know some other kind of concepts in the same space. And thought, uh, and Betfair, I think, was probably the, the other catalyst there. And thought that, you know, if we can trade tangible goods via marketplaces why can't we trade intangibles and money seems like a good place to start and so we founded this this business called Nex way back then when there were only maybe two or three other peer-to-peer lending businesses in the world and managed to convince a bunch of uh, uh, sort of angel investor types to give us and some other young people some money and build a business and away we went. Unfortunately, we launched right before the GFC, <laughs> um, and let's just say the appetite of the um, the Securities Commission in New Zealand to embark on sort of exciting novel entrepreneurial new financial products at that time was zero. <laughs> so we uh, we actually sort of pivoted the business into um, building technology for some other companies, and then that kind of rolled into Boston Partners, where we took that and consulted and worked with financial institutions and other companies to kind of take what we'd learned and built in those early years. And then we were sort of sitting around and Plenty, formerly Rate Setter, came along a little bit after that. So
3: the bit of the story there is that, look, we'd always harboured aspirations to go back and, and relaunch a marketplace lender. It was Dan, the CEO of Plenty, who, along with the Rate Setter team from the UK, said, hey guys, doing this in New Zealand, it sounds interesting, but it's a relatively small market. You don't have the benefit of, you know, an existing technology platform. You don't have the, the benefit of brands. Why don't we do this together with all of those things in, in Australia and that made a lot of sense yeah, yeah
2: yeah wow I'm just doing the maths on that so you guys first had the idea in 2007 and then it took seven years to have a second crack at it yeah and then it only took six years from when you had started the second crack to when
0: you IPO'd that's it it's
2: crazy how quickly these things uh, yeah. can develop.
0: So, 13 years, we just it's passed a billion dollars. We're our average run rate.
2: As we mentioned, you guys just IPO'd, and we are fascinated by, I guess, the process of, you know, everyone loves a startup story these days and, you know, the entrepreneurial journey. But that transition from being a startup and being a private company into the public markets is a fascinating one. So I guess can you can you sort of take us into the room, you know, with the two of you, with Daniel, with the rest of the executive team. What was the decision making process around, you know, are we ready to IPO? Why would we IPO? Yeah, what were those conversations like and how did you ultimately come to that decision? So look, it's a it's a it's a really good
3: question and the answer could get quite long, so you know, feel free to cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> we always, you know, even from the very earliest days when we were kind of thinking about what this business might look like over various time horizons, it always seemed very natural to us that we would end up on the public markets. If you just think about the ethos of the business being transparency and and openness and providing access to to retail investors to previously closed off asset classes, the idea then of those retail investors having an ownership stake in, in the business it felt very natural. The other aspect to that is growing loan books are insatiable devourers of, of capital, especially when you start using other financing structures such as warehouses, where there's a requirement to put in at the bottom of the capital stack an amount of equity. That all sounds very complicated. What it means is the banks really want you to be very aligned with the loan outcomes. So they want you to have some of your money at, at stake as well. Ordinarily, it, would, it depends, but but for in, in our sector, that's kind of on the order of 5%. So if we want Wanted a warehouse of of a billion dollars, say, to write loans. We would need 50 million dollars worth of worth of equity. So you know, it, you can raise that that capital privately, but it starts to get both really tiresome and really quite expensive because the return profile that the types of private investors that you're talking to is they want a lot return for their money, you tend to see financial services businesses go public at some point just because of that ongoing requirement for, for access to capital. Why now? I think it was exactly that. We've always sought to make this a really resilient, diversified business the retail investing platform is tremendously important to us philosophically and strategically. But, you know, as we saw very recently, it's not always advisable to rely on one source of capital, right? So we, we've wanted to complement that with the warehouses, which is just money from banks, essentially, the simple way of putting it. And we also have another funding platform as well, which is um, a little bit more complex. But having those the three legs to that stool, we think, gives us that resilience. And leaning more into warehouses meant we, we needed more capital. So we were going to, need to run money anyway the question then was well what's what's going to be a sustainable ongoing source of that capital and it, it also happened to align very closely with what we thought about you know as i said earlier the ethos of the business being owned by the people who invest through it So it just just felt like the right time. Mm.
1: Yeah. So Ben, you know, we've spoken to a number of companies who have IPO'd and a couple of fund managers as well who take companies through the IPO process and it can be anywhere from a two-month to a two-year process. How far out from IPO did you guys decide let's do this and then what steps did you need to put in place between decision and go?
0: I guess ours was a little bit of an interesting journey in that it was interrupted by COVID. So I think, you know, late last year, at the beginning of this year, we started to seriously look at it and think about timing and put a few preparatory steps in place. You know, without going into too much detail, that's, you know, just sort of cleaning house. It's making yeah. sure that you're sort of IPO ready. You've, you've got an understanding of your business. You've got the right people in place. You, you've, you've sort of tidied up things such that when you decide to hit the button, there aren't any roadblocks or surprises that are going to come out and interrupt the process because you just try to de-risk the exit. Size as much as you possibly can. So we were probably at that stage in sort of February, maybe as late as March and then COVID arrived and and we just had to see which way the, the world played out, right? So, you know, number one in our minds was credit performance. And so, you know, making sure our investors were protected and got what they expected to get. So we made some pretty quick moves there to, to you know, pull back on marketing and acquisition and also tighten up our portfolio parameters and then you know also just work with our existing customers to try and make sure that where they needed help we could we could give it to them so that was number one priority and then it was you know figuring out what the world was going to look like in one month three months six months whatever and I think we were lucky in that Australia grabbed things by the horns and kind Mm. of Uh, stabilize things for a little while, we had to still wait to see what a few cycles of JobKeeper and all those types of things looked like for our credit book. It was good that because we had lent to really prime customers, because we were very early and sort of engaging and and sort of steadying the business, we were in a a really good position to be able to, when we saw an opportunity IPO and we saw maybe the market opening back up, We, we wanted to be one of the first, if not the first. So when we actually saw the window of opportunity, which we expected to kind of come in September, you know, this is probably about... June, I would have guessed maybe early July. We just said, look, we're we're just going to go for it, and I think we probably did one of the fastest, you know, start to finish IPO processes that any of the advisors that we worked with have 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 seen. You know, really, it was start to finish, including all of the paperwork and legal due diligence and financials work and all that sort of stuff. And brand, name yeah, brand, <laughs> well, brand name change. Yeah. Brand name change, yeah. We like to walk and chew gum. But that happened in six weeks, really. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So it was a lot of very hard work and we had a, you know a lot of internal people working on it. But in in a way, we we're quite lucky with that, I think. Having it draw out of a, a two-year process would be unbelievably distracting, for example. Mm. Just being able to hit it and do it and kind of move on has been was great.
2: Bryce mentioned the name change. I want to get to that in a sec, but before I do, I want to pick up on something you said there about wanting to be the first out of the gate when markets sort of... Normalized, I guess, which is an interesting approach. Given there was so much uncertainty about, you know, what would the market's appetite be for IPOs, and you know, like, is it actually settled? There was still a lot of uncertainty. So, why did you guys want to be first?
0: I mean, I think it was a case of of two things. One is we'd started the project and and just kind of knew that we had to raise some capital to be able to to keep growing the business. But but most importantly, I think from previous observations and you know experiences, we knew that on the back of a sort of an economic slowdown can be a really great time to be lending you've seen I guess some of the better credit wash out you've seen kind of competitors be a little bit impeded you've seen larger institutions like banks just have to really pull back into the bunker and stabilize their own businesses so we wanted to be in a position where we could really aggressively grow and so just looking for the earliest possible opportunity to get that capital get the warehouses fueled up and ready to go and you know you're kind of seeing that now so our last quarter's results and so on as we're investing to, to grow on the back end of, of a, a pretty tomorrow. There's another component to
3: that, which is in other IPO processes, the the timing takes on a lot more importance, ordinarily because there's a sell down component, right? So there are people who are trying to realise a a return, there's, you know, you really need to time things in accordance with market appetite, you want to see things happen with the share price after listing, etc. The rationale for us was raising capital. Mm. And Honestly, we've always thought about this business over really long-term horizons. I really sometimes don't like confiding this because it can sound weirdly grandiose. But I mean, <laughs> the, the first the first conversations that me Ben and Dan ever had about this business, we were talking about sort of 10, 20 year horizons, right? So, you know, whether it was September this year or February next year, it's just uh, who, who really Whatever. who really cared. It was more just the, the capital needed to come yeah, in because none of us yeah. has, none of us have sold down. None of us have any aspiration to sell down anytime soon. We're all really committed to it so mm. so it was more just as ben said market conditions really really we think very advantageous for a for an insurgent challenger loan
2: yeah. uh, provider when yeah. you yeah when you explain it like that it makes yeah. a lot of sense yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: it's a tick in the box for us if uh, the company has a, a very long-term horizon at ipo yeah. because you know you don't want the, the ipo driven by people who want to get their Quick return and, exactly. and walkways. So. Yeah,
3: no, that, that's that's exactly right. I, I just, you know, I think we think about the business in respect of kind of capabilities. You know, we think we've built a really strong platform after the first five years. The capabilities we think we've developed are just an outstanding technology platform, really strong operating platform. There's a level of maturity around our business, which, uh, you know, was very helpful in, in even things like the IPO process. Yeah. A lot of businesses, to, you know, from from our understanding, do take a lot of time just to get to the point where they have their accounts in order and, and, and the like. Ours, we, we were just already already kind of there. And we think that those capabilities can take us a very long way. Right, we, there, there are lots of interesting loan markets that we would like to be addressing, and that's why we think about it over really long terms. Yeah.
2: So we've touched on the name change a couple of times. So we'd love to get the backstory there. Was it related to the IPO? Did you just get sick of setter? You wanted some new merch? <laughs> What's what the story there? It's, a, it's
3: a game, one of those things that was kind of interrupt. We really first started down that track towards the end of, of last year. What was the reason? So think about the original rationale for us being rate setter. It was because, in a sense, we partnered with the UK firm rate setter to mm. accelerate our launch here. We were able to leverage their technology, their credibility, their knowledge. Their co-founder was and is on our on our board of directors in order to to really accelerate our launch here. And having that brand affinity was really helpful for credibility as well for the really early cohort of retail investors. Right? It's we, it, there was a sense of substance there if we were associated with you okay guys it was very evident though that we were on pretty different trajectories by the even the beginning of last year right they were very committed to retail funding as a model they were doing different things with credit than than our credit appetite, we had broader aspirations in in Australia than what they were thinking about in, in terms of what they were doing in the UK. So the, the businesses were were you know, were really drifting apart. So retaining that link, it felt less and less relevant to us, and we wanted to really have our own identity. So that that was kind of the rationale, and that's why the, you know, we, start, we we kicked off the process, and then again interrupted by COVID among other things, and then it, it had to be really accelerated because of the IPO. Mm. I mean you, you couldn't you couldn't IPO and then try to change no. It. no Afterwards, no, no, it would just be a, an absolute disaster. Yeah, so
2: trying to change your ticker as well <laughs> no, and all yeah. of that. No, yeah. no. So it
3: probably felt like it came out of nowhere for a lot of people, but it's mm. something we'd been thinking about for for a while. Yeah. The final reason that really accelerated the, the name change in addition to the IPO was that the UK business got acquired. So they were acquired by effectively a neobank in, in the UK. And we would have had to have started paying things like like license fees, which, which yeah, didn't right. make okay. a whole lot of sense. So, so so you know, they, they really yeah. pushed it to the top of the, the agenda.
1: I'm interested from a marketing point of view, it's a pretty significant thing to do, it change your, your name, because you're really trying to change your identity in some way. How do you know if it's landed successfully or not? And do you think it has? Obviously, you're going to say yes. Yeah, good
0: <laughs> it was a huge part of the decision about how and in what way you would do it and, you know, how much of your existing DNA you want to retain and how much you want to, to, you know, move on from. I guess we were aided in a, in a couple of ways. One is the relationships that we have with our partners, our brokers, our installers, and even our, you know, our investor customers is quite close. They they interact with us a lot. So we have a lot of opportunities to kind of tell the new story and give them the new brand. And, and, and that actually worked relatively seamlessly. There, there probably was a little bit of a loss of, of sort of broader brand awareness that people had that they didn't know who Plenty was. But we, we did invest a little bit of, of time and energy in, in make, trying to communicate to those people. But I think more fundamentally, it was about actually working to find a really good name. And we worked with an amazing agency who've done really cool things like Airbnb and Deliveroo and all kinds of other amazing companies. And they worked really hard and thought quite deeply about what a name was that was at very least a great platform to build a big significant consumer brand in australia that could really be given life um, across all of our aspirations not just marketplace lending and consumer lending but beyond and and they recognize that ambition and so we've sort of only done the first part which is to rename ourselves and kind of give a little flavor of you know what the brand direction might be but we're actually looking forward to doing a lot more there and making ourselves a much more visible part of the Australian consumer finance landscape and so we don't think we're going to go backwards and in fact that was a great point to stop reflect on what the brand meant and who you were, and then kind of build a brand afresh from that point forward. In a weird way, I wish other companies could have the opportunity to kind of stop and rebuild themselves in that (laughs) way uh, as well. It was very refreshing. What's interesting about that
3: is in a way we did the rebrand on easy mode, right? We didn't really have much by way of brand marketing. We really don't have much by way of kind of broader brand recognition. There is really strong recognition and very defined niches. But contrast us with having to do it if you had hundreds of thousands of customers, for example, mm. and, and if brand marketing was something you relied very heavily on and it would have been a very, very different proposition. And, you know, to be precise about this, if you think about most of where we get it, most of our borrowers. I'd be really surprised if most of our borrowers had, had ever heard the name rate setter before they before they borrowed with us, mm. just because the way we were acquiring was either di- direct acquisition, so people would find us via digital aggregators or search, or the broker channel, where the broker is saying, "Hey, you might not have heard of these people before, but they're mm. really good," and there's a you know, credibility proxy there. So, and so obviously, you know, ac- and obviously, equity mates. As yeah, well, yeah, obviously, so. yeah, <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it was comparatively, we had a really good platform to do it from. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you've gone with one of the, I guess. Uh, tech tropes when it comes to names, which is the ending in the I. Yep. Similar tech tropes are dropping a vowel or two or ending <laughs> in an R. Is it plenty.io?
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs>
3: so I was really, really anti going too far down the, the, yeah, the like tech trope type, add a Z in there for no reason, yeah. <laughs> drop a vowel. And then it was explained to me some of the reasons why you might do it. And it's not just so that you're kind of cool and trendy because I'm I'm not. It's more that, you know, if you're wanting to try and find a domain name, or if you're wanting yeah, to try and make yeah. sure that if somebody Googles your name, it's easily spellable and they're not got, nothing yeah. else is going to show up when, when that when yeah, that, when that happens. Yeah, yeah. It's so that you can trademark it, for example. Mm, yeah. And you'd just be amazed after how many hundreds of years of registration trademark systems, how many names have just gone, right? So it really reduces your universe. So you kind of have to get a bit funky unless you're wanting to pay extraordinary yeah, amounts. Yeah, yeah, to- <laughs> yeah. No, that does make a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah,
2: yeah. But I imagine there were some other names that were left on the cutting room floor. Are you, are you willing to share <laughs> any of the maybe not so good names names that were considered
0: they've <laughs> been left in the, the review mirror i mean there's a few in the sort of shortlist that we could we could share who knows we might want to reinvigorate them one day sure, what you know? in, what 2021 what re-brand? was incredible about it though right the agency is you know is has put some mood music
3: on and gets the presentation readings really is going through and here's the name and then there'd be just silence from us and okay moving right along and then yeah. the next one, and no okay we'll move along to that one but plenty immediately got a response it was immediately the right one for us yeah, yeah. okay yeah well,
2: that's good that's good We've touched on two of the big changes, the IPO and the name change. Mm-hmm. There was a third big change recently which was around the capping of the rates. So traditionally it was a free for all, you you know, you said the rate you wanted to lend at. People who wanted to borrow said the rate they wanted to borrow at. And you you've actually capped the rates that people can lend at. Caused a few questions in the equity mates community. So given we got you guys are bo- we've got you both on, uh, we figured we'd ask the question. Can you talk us through why the business made that decision?
3: Yeah. Caused a lot of questions among my Whirlpool Forum friends as
0: well. Do we want to direct people there? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't look at Whirlpool Forum. plenty of only right there. I think Glenn can probably answer the substantive component of this, but I think it's worth noting at the outset that the markets never operated completely freely. And whilst I, we appreciate that there's a sort of deep conceptual – Sort of value that people attach to, which is that peer to peer or marketplace lenders should be this perfect free market to operate in. What we've actually seen is that those kinds of free markets, at least for this model, don't work well. They result in either horrible credit losses or very imperfect markets. So Ratesetter's model from the very beginning was always about shaping that market a little bit to make sure that borrowers and investors got a better experience. So you know, unlike some models where a borrower sort of created almost like a Facebook profile of themselves and people could bid you know, against that. Plenty Rate Setter has always had a model where we say, "Look, we decide who the borrowers are. You know, we'll put them in a queue, and you, as an investor, can fund them." But you know, you couldn't bid any rate. We always did cap rates. You couldn't choose any term. We always prescribed terms. You couldn't have any kind of asset. You could only have consumer loans. So, whilst we appreciate the sort of ideological purity in some people's minds is important. It's only instrumental. It's only, you know, it's only towards an end. The end is earning good returns, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis. And this decision to, to lower rates was just an evolution of that. It was just another constraint for us that said, we think this is the best way to ensure that you continue to earn or have opportunities to earn really good returns investing in an asset class that you've never had access to before.
3: There's a really important point there, which is that it's probably underappreciated by our by our retail investors, which is that there's a really strong trade-off that we observe between rates and, and credit quality. If you want a, a 10% rate of return, that puts you into a very different risk category. Any kind of investing, right? Yeah. Higher the rate, you know, it's going to be a, a risk correlation with that. And, and, and in our case, we, we observe it very directly. It's If you are 10 to 12%, that means you are higher than every other prime lender in the market. And so you don't get those good borrowers. They go elsewhere. What you are left with is is lower tier borrowers. And that's not something that we thought was consistent with our ambition to provide strong and stable risk-adjusted returns on a through-the-cycle basis, right? Those types of returns might be good in one state of the world, in a in another, they, they can really quickly go quite quite sour. We prefer the stability of better quality prime borrowers. And that meant that we kind of didn't feel like we had much of a choice. We were going to continue to, to offer the retail platform, but to change up how those rates were offered so that we could keep offering investors what we want to offer them. That's the real trade-off,
1: yeah. So life in the public markets, you are now executives with, uh, I guess... A lot more need for transparency and everyone can be reading your reports yeah. and, and you <laughs> name it. So
3: Punctuated transparency.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't
3: say anything until we have to say everything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> have you found that your day-to-day job has changed in any way, given now that you're uh, in the public eye?
0: I don't think it's changed as much as people think that it would. I think this goes back to our point earlier about being an IPO-ready company and having invested already in functions like an excellent sort of finance team and an investor relations team and having those capabilities it just meant that instead of doing it to your private investors you now as glenn said get to write a quarterly report card and give it to your public (laughs) investors (laughs) you know should try harder pay attention (laughs) Um, so in terms of what we do day to day there is obviously a little bit of overhead from being a public company and there's a bit of compliance and you know thinking about investors and all those kinds of things but but not not so much more that What I think is different, though, is having, as Glenn mentioned at the top of this podcast, this ability to, well, first of all, having raised the money that we've got gives you just a much greater scale of ambition. And then knowing that you're in that market, that means if you need to in the future tap it to keep growing, you you could if you wanted to. We, We don't anticipate doing that at the moment. But it changes the scope of the ambition that you've got, and also the reward, the reward you get for delivering it. When investors see you doing good things, you pass a billion dollars in lending, you know they they give you a, they give you a sticker for that, and they say, "Well done." <laughs>
3: yeah, I'd almost be a bit concerned if it had changed our jobs too much, yeah. because it would probably mean that, you know, to take one example, would be too near-term focused, right? If, mm. I, if all I was doing was sitting staring at originations and refreshing them every minute, that that is really not very valuable activity either mm. for the company or, or for its or for its investors. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what got us to this point was a certain ambition and a certain set of capabilities we wanted to build. We are pretty confident if we keep doing that, the value will will flow. So we're just going to keep doing that,
2: I think. On that point about avoiding being too short term, you know, the share price moves eight hours a day or however long the market's open. You have to report, you know, half yearly, and I'm sure you're giving updates throughout the year as well. How do you keep that long term focus in front of all those sort of near-term distractions?
3: Look, I'll answer it from the perspective of the share price. Like, I think if you told me, you know, if I was sitting in your shoes and I said something like the following, I, I literally do not look at the share price. I haven't looked at it in about four weeks. Mm. Um, I, I, if I were us, in your Do you shoes, want us to tell you what it is? <laughs> really not, no, no. I, 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 you can. I honestly don't I don't really care, though. It's, it just sounds weird, but I'll explain what I mean. I, I'd probably be a bit incredulous about what do you mean you don't know what it is and why don't you care? But to the earlier point, we're very focused on creating long-term value. We think we do that by continuing to do the things we've always done in that we told investors we were going to do. The share price is going to do what the share price does from from day to day. And if we become too reactive to do whatever the share price is doing on any given day, we could lose sight of the long term ambition that we have and the way we think we're going to achieve that. And that sounds that sounds really weird and fluffy and meta, no, metaphorical no, and the think, like.
2: But yeah, I think the more that we do this podcast and we speak to people, that that long term focus is yeah. is the number one thing and. Yeah. One of my favourite books or business books, investing books, is The Outsiders, which covers eight CEOs that just had unbelievable rate of returns. And it was the same thing, you know. Some of them went to the extremes of like not having investor relations departments because they were like, the market will do what the market will do. We're just going to grow a good business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that's the right
3: attitude. I mean, there are, but there are obviously different attitudes and there, there are people, it's all about communicating momentum and, and growth, for example, so as to try and drive uplift in share price. I, I just, that's just... This is not us. I mm. think is the way the, the yeah. best way to describe it. It's just not really our personality.
2: Yeah. So going from the long term focus to the short term focus, you guys released your first set of half year results yesterday. So we've got you in at a good time. How does it feel to you know be exposing yourself to the first time for the public? How were the results? Were they in line with prospectus? Did you have a party in the office to celebrate?
0: <laughs> no, no, we didn't have a party to celebrate the uh, the uploading of a PDF file on <laughs> the <laughs> website, but we, we did have a party to celebrate passing a billion dollars of loans originated since our launch in 2014. We think we're the, the first Australian fintech to do that. That was a very exciting moment, oh, and yeah. it, it was really nice that it coincided with our results, because we could sort of point back and say we capped off an amazingly good quarter and a little bit in a difficult time. You know, it was four straight months of record originations. It was a thirty three percent uplift in originations from the first, you know, from the prior comparable period. D- despite COVID. Yeah, despite it, COVID. Yeah. It was a beat on all of the prospectus, you know, indicators that, that we were focused on revenue, you know, loan portfolio, uh the arrears met, met and loss, credit performance and net losses. Wow. It was so we were very pleased that we we could tell investors we were going to do one thing, and we, we you know we had to put that down on a piece of paper in July, and that we were able to do better than that by the end of the year, even in a very uncertain environment. So it gave us a bit of confidence, but it also I think it rewarded investors who took that punt, and particularly in a difficult time, and said, look, we told you we were going to do these things, and, and we were able to. So look, it, it was great. we were we were very excited about it. We kind of flagged in the presentation and the release also i guess the outlook for or some aspects of the outlook for the for the next six months 12 months and it was nice to be able to talk publicly about some of those things about how we're going to evolve our existing products and and deepen those we're going to look to you know, tap some new pools of capital, which will give us a funding cost advantage and, and more scale, you know, potentially move into interesting new areas like commercial lending for automotive products, which is a huge industry in Australia and one that we haven't addressed previously, but is a, 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 just an area that's ripe for the kind of low cost, high efficiency product that, that we offer. And, you know, with a lot of incumbents who haven't made the investment in technology, and those are exactly the kind of markets that we really look at carefully and say, you know, when we build, as Glenn said, this incredible technology capability, this slick, you know, operational base, then we can go into those kind of markets and 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 keep growing really, really strongly, you know, you know, 50, 100% year-on-year growth that we've had, you know, on previous years going, going not, back. Not that that's a forward-looking statement. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on that, comment around, you know,
2: providing an outlook to the market on, you know, some of the things you expect to say over the next 12 months. I'm, I'm always interested in companies, one, that they choose to do that. And I know there's a lot of pressure from investors to do it, but two, how companies are managing that with COVID. And, you know, especially in, in the business you guys are in with, you know, the uncertainty around the economic recovery, the uncertainty around will JobKeeper remain or, you know, what what's going to be put in its place if we have another lockdown, I imagine there's a heap of uncertainty in terms of Mm. what the next 12 months looks like. So how do you think about that and navigate that? No, it's a a good question.
3: I think just because of the relative maturity of our company, there isn't the same requirement to do things like provide forecasts, like actual financial forecasts next quarter, six months financial year this is what we expect revenue costs etc to be there would be more risk in us in us doing that just because you know we're relatively smaller so we are buffeted more by by changes as they emerge so rather than provide forecasts I, what we try to do is just provide some color by okay. right? what the yeah. contours of where we expect to go in the next half. So to that end, you know, we said, for example, in light of what Ben said about new product developments, we're going to continue to invest very heavily in technology and people, you may see that fall through to the cost line mm. in the in the next half. For example, is what we yeah, said. Right. What we also said is, you know, in, in each of the the, the the primary loan verticals we operate in, here's what we expect to be doing to, to maintain really strong growth. But we didn't provide any forecast. I think it'll be some time before we before there's the 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 regularity to our business that allow us to do that.
4: Mm.
1: Hmm. So are there any sort of new verticals in terms of future growth that you're you're looking to tap into or you think are pretty interesting that you're able to share, I guess, without blowing your business plans?
0: <laughs> but, um... I mean, really just the ones that are in the presentation at this stage, which is um, we've sort of flagged that commercial products and automotive is an interesting area to us. But that's not to say that's not the only ones we're thinking about and looking at pretty closely. They're, they're,
3: they're obvious adjacencies, right? Yeah.
0: So w- what's great about our business
3: is that our technology and operating platform lets us spin up new products and businesses really quickly. Like when we made the decision to enter into renewable energy lending it was a matter of months from the original concept to actually having a product in market, which is, which is remarkably quick. And there are some obvious adjacencies. So, so commercial auto sounds like it's a wildly different market. It's really not. Actually, in many cases, you're lending to exactly the same people. Like, but it's just that they use the vehicle predominantly for a commercial purpose. And so it's a slightly different application process, which we don't currently facilitate. Beyond that, yeah, we can't provide too much guidance. But what I always like to say is the aspiration that got us to where we are now was always about providing better value and better experiences and to disrupt large loan markets, I think you should expect to see us continue doing that. You know, the way I increasingly like to say, uh, to think about and to to communicate it is, we're pretty committed to the non-bank model, so we'll remain a non-bank, but we want to do more of the things that a bank does. But we want to do them better, is the way
2: to Yeah. Okay. That's cool. We're obviously in a very low interest rate environment and probably are going to be for a long time. Has that affected you guys at all? Has that affected, you know, the the investors, I guess, or the borrowers that are coming through? And, you know, I, I imagine there's, uh, even though you're capping rates, uh, 6.5% interest rate for an investor compared to what they can get in a term deposit or in a savings account is keeping people coming through the door. <laughs>
0: That's exactly it. I mean, you know, whilst the RBA gave a you know nice cut to bank accounts and term deposits on Melbourne Cup Day, you know, we didn't. So on a, you know, just relative to cash basis, everyone's returns went up. That's
3: um, a, a really interesting way of thinking about it, which is, um, you know, uh, there's a, uh, to, to your earlier point, a lot of consternation around us capping or oh, reducing the rate cap. There was already a rate cap. If you think about the margin between, say, what an online saver term deposit rate was two to three years ago it was more than the 3 to 3.5% range. We were paying our investors in the 8 to 8.5% range. So the margin over that relatively risk-free investment was about 5%. Now, those online saver rates are sort of 1% to 1.5%, and we're offering 6 to 6.5% right? So so are so doing margin. Well if you're getting the margin, 1.5%. Yeah, thank So the margin over that risk-free rate hasn't really changed. Mm. So I think I'd I prefer that that's the way that people thought about it. And in fact, in that time, we've become you know, substantially more sophisticated in our risk modeling and our discrimination between good and bad borrowers and our collection capabilities, all those things that de-risk the returns. So it's a really strong risk-adjusted return, arguably stronger than where it was even two or three years ago, even though the nominal headline rate has come down. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
2: I think it might be worth just quickly expanding on that for a second. So, you know, we're talking about risk-adjusted returns and risk-free rates and, you know, there's a number of different investment choices that people have, everything from you know, government-sponsored, you know, savings accounts all the way through to, you know, options and warrants and the most risky of the Mm. risk, you know, equity and investments and stuff like that. How do you guys – where do you guys see yourselves on the risk curve and what are some of the things that you guys do to protect – You know, because we're we're talking about, you know, I I wouldn't want to lend my money to Bryce over a (laughs) peer-to-peer lending platform. So how do you protect me from Bryce's profligate spending and bad gambling (laughs) 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 habits? There's a few ways. So the first way is that we have very
3: good scoring models. If Bryce were to apply with us, we take a very close look at for example, his transaction account, and we have a look at the activity there, and we'd see so his—you wouldn't want to look well, at we'd see his, we'd <laughs> see his prof, profligate gambling habit, in <laughs> <laughs> and that would put him into a different risk category. And associated with that different risk category is a different price, right? So, so this is one of the things we were first to introduce into the Australian market: is very granular risk-based pricing. Relatively riskier borrowers pay more for their loan. And what we do to protect our retail investors is we take that additional charge to borrowers and we put it in a trust. And that trust is called the provision fund. And if any of the investors who funded Bryce's loan or anyone else's, anyone else's loan should default or miss a payment, the provision fund can compensate them for that, for that loss. So one of the most important questions that I hope our investors ask about us and our platform is, are we provisioning enough for loss? in their estimation and secondly what is the balance of that provision fund and how you know what is its sufficiency to be able to cover future loss and we provide all that information on the website we hope that people take a take a close look at and make their own make their own mind up but just for you know indic- indicatively at the moment it's about 1.6 times coverage that is to say of the the losses that we expect from the loans that we've originated on that retail lending platform, there's about 1.6 times coverage in the in the provision fund, or money's owing to the provision fund to, to cover that loss. Yeah.
1: Nice. Ben, to close out before we uh, jump into some final three questions, given COVID's come through and there's a lot of fiscal stimulus coming through the government, you know, JobKeeper and and the like, how has COVID changed the the broader consumer lending market, if at all?
0: Yeah, it's interesting question to look at I think it's probably marked by by two things one is as you mentioned there's been a a huge amount of government stimulus uh, or or more money available to to the economy whether that's by way of of welfare payments or JobKeeper or you know early uh, access to your superannuation Mm -hmm. so I think one of the the most significant things we've seen has been just an absolute focus by consumers and households on paying down debt Mm -hmm. so we have seen a, a significant you know Increase in what we call prepayment rates or early repayment rates. People paying ahead of schedule on their loans, just realising that perhaps in December and January last year or this year, uh, they you know were perhaps at the upper limits of their of their household balance sheet, and they wanted to in slightly scarier times when employment is more uncertain and you know what's going to happen next is not known, they wanted to put themselves on a more firmer firmer footing. So from a credit perspective, that's great because obviously we have capital returned back to us from. Loans that are out there earlier than expected that reduces the possibility and impact of, of future losses, but it also gives us a bit more firepower to go out there and, and lend to those people who who are credit worthy. What was
3: extraordinary about this recession is that our arrears rates actually for a period declined year on year. They're now just back to sort of flat year on year. The prepayments, the deleveraging was was another surprise. This mm. is the extent to which we saw people paying down debt and loss rates actually. You know, very very stable and well below. You know, if we if we we have a lot of modelling that that seeks to try and stress what our loss rates might look like if, for example, unemployment were to to reach you know seven, eight, nine, ten percent. Right there, there are well trodden models for these things, and none of that played out. So in that sense, it was a very unusual recession. Our chief risk officer Simon had spent the better part of fifteen years at American Express and. During which time he had very large exposure to the uh, global financial crisis in the US and 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 the UK loan books of American Express, so he knows what one of these crises kind of can can look like. And he was just sitting back thinking, "This is nothing like what I've seen before." And mm. just and it's just the the answer is fiscal stimulus. Just just kept things ticking over.
0: I'll add one more thing to that. I think which people didn't haven't appreciated enough, which is that uh, in this in this environment, both because of sort of broadcasting from the central government and actions by financiers, the hardship regime in in Australia has given households a little moment to pause and figure out what is actually happening to them. And the fact that financiers have given people opportunities to either make reduced payments or put payments on pause, let people organise their sort of financial affairs has led to a much more orderly progression, I guess, out of the recession. We didn't have very many people on hardship. In fact, we had unbelievably low rates of financial hardship relative to some of our industry peers. Um, but even those people who were have moved off them much more quickly than we had expected. But the fact that they could pause and organize themselves has meant not forced asset sales. It hasn't meant you know people having to take out small amount credit contracts or rely on credit cards. They were able to kind of pr- progressively move back to a position of, of repaying loans. And that's been a very important aspect in reducing those rates, of rates and loss rates.
2: I'm very mindful of the time, but I've got to ask this given we're an Australian investing podcast in 2020. Buy Now Pay Later has obviously exploded. Have you guys seen an effect on that in terms of borrowing and who's borrowing and stuff like that? Not something
3: that that we really observe. I think the impact is probably much more pronounced on on, on credit card portfolios. You'd, you'd think just because the the average transaction size for for true sort of buy now pay later. I'm not talking about you know something like where there's a ten thousand dollar credit limit, for example, and it's and and the paydown period is, is many years. I'm talking about sort of things that are paid down within twelve months or, or even sooner. The basket sizes are just a just a lot, yeah, a lot lower. Yeah. You know, our average loan size for an unsecured personal loan is on the order of fifteen thousand dollars. or 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 thereabouts so that lends itself much more towards bigger things home renovations big major events or or debt debt, debt consolidation is the other one
2: Mm. although in saying that i'm pretty sure prices are to pay bills around that 15k mark
3: (laughs) 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 there's something in our credit risk framework for that
2: (laughs) we want to thank both of you guys for coming on i think this has been a really interesting conversation and we're excited to follow the journey of plenty in the public markets and um you know, see how this long-term vision plays out. But to wrap up this interview, we do like to finish with uh, final three questions. So we'll get stuck into those and we'll get answers from both of you. So the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise?
0: Probably the hard thing about hard things is uh, one of the most influential books I've probably read read, and more, most closely aligns with my experience in growing, growing a business. book by Ben Horowitz, who's now a you know, well-known venture capitalist, mm. but has and probably an obvious answer. I, I'll see if I can predict Glenn's next one. Well, I was actually going to say the hard thing about hard
3: things, so I know I had to think very quickly on my feet. No, no, the, the other one for me is Zero to One yeah. um, by, by Peter yeah, Thiel. Okay. I think they're also very complementary books in that Zero to One is about, as the name should, should suggest, that, that, that the sort of the, the origins of startup businesses and the perils of competition, among, among other things. And then the hard thing about hard things is these things are never linear. It's never a straight line. There are always curveballs constantly. And the thing that really defines good companies is their resilience and how they respond to how they respond to those things. You can't expect that none of them are ever going to happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The second question is what's your go-to source for investing in financial information?
3: I've got a, a couple of answers. So if it's just sort of the day to day current affairs and a bit of analysis type stuff, it's the the FT. If it's the I really want to have a, a real deep dive into something quite esoteric and I've never Really sure what it's going to be. It's it's Matt Levine's oh, um, it. Matt,
4: right.
3: <laughs> Matt Levine's column in, in, in Bloomberg View, which is absolutely outstanding. I yeah, yeah,
0: I really like Tracy Alloway as well, who's a Bloomberg podcaster and writer, very similar kind of outlook on the world. So yeah, but Matt Levine, if you're not reading it, you should be.
2: Okay, nice one, nice one. And then the final question: If you think back, uh, you know, to your younger selves, you know, maybe when you're in New Zealand in 2007, first having a crack at peer-to-peer lending what advice would you have for your younger self? It's not not that we don't have answers. We're trying to very quickly sift through the the hundreds of things that I've been trying to tell my younger self.
0: Um... (laughs) So if I was telling myself or talking to myself years ago when I was first starting out, it would be that the fact that it takes longer than you think it doesn't mean that it's not actually going in the right direction it's just these things take a hell of a lot longer than people tell you that they, they do and I think one of the interesting aspects of this was when we started the IPO process we looked at a number of businesses about how long they had been in existence big, big Australian businesses before they IPO'd and this perception that companies like need to IPO quickly if they're to be successful just isn't true you look at Seek you look at car sales big Australian brand names some of them took I think 10 years in the case of, of car sales or 7 years before mm. they were able to IPO and that, that patience will is often rewarded. Yeah. Um, so hang in there, I guess, is the short answer to that. Nice
3: one. My answer is going to be a variation on a theme, which is what can seem in retrospect if you're looking from the outside at people's stories and people's accomplishments to be a very linear trajectory is is never that, right? At every single every single day, there's sort of a tree of different options. And in looking back, yeah, it looks like a very definitive, um, kind of determinative path, but it, it, never, it never really is. So, you know, it, just go back to, the basics, you know, build something that's really valuable, have a lot of grit and resilience, stick to it. Overnight successes can take a lot of nights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Wilbur.
1: Ben and Glenn, it's been great having you on the show. Fascinating to get an insight into the process that you guys have gone through with taking Plenty into the public market. So appreciate you coming on. For the Equity Mates audience, if you do want to check out the thing that uh, Plenty has to offer, it's plenty.com.au and you can sign up there for both investing and if you if you need to borrow as well, there's plenty of information there. So head over there, check out the brand name change and uh, we look, for, <laughs> look forward to seeing how you guys go over the next, well, 10, 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks,
3: guys. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed
4: financial professional.